0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're in Romans chapter 4 as we continue in our sermon series on the life of Abraham that we have entitled Finding Faith in a Fallen World. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, if we're still in the midst of a sermon series on the life of Abraham, which we read about in Genesis, Then why are you asking me to turn to Romans chapter 4? Romans is in the New Testament. Why would we do that? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. If you were with us last week, you know that we're up in the story of Abraham through Genesis chapter 15. And we read last week, Genesis 15 and verse 6, which says that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so we wanted to take a week to kind of think about that one line that was very important. It's an important verse that's mentioned several times in the New Testament. And probably the best commentary on Genesis 15 and verse 6, is Romans chapter 4. This entire chapter is really unpacking that one verse in Genesis chapter 15. So we want to take a week and look at Romans chapter 4. And as we get started, I want to direct your attention specifically to the end of Romans chapter 4. Look at the end of Romans chapter 4. Now we're going to go back to the beginning and work our way through it. But I think this helps us. To pay even closer attention to Romans chapter 4, when we look at the end, look what it says at the end. Romans 4, beginning in verse 21, we're told that Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, trans- our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is writing here at the end of Romans chapter 4? He's saying that this was written not just for Abraham, but it was written for our sake as well. Basically, we'll see in this chapter, Paul is saying is that the way it worked for Abraham is the same way that it works for us. And so for those of us who would like to be made right with God, to have a relationship with him, to have saving faith, then how it worked with Abraham would have great interest to us. And so we see that these words we're about to read and go through were written not just about Abraham, but they're written for us. And these things, these promises that are made to Abraham can be promises for us as well. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 4. I want to think about it under three headings. Uh, If you're a note taker out there, there there's some notes that we've passed out, but you'll see I want to look at this under these headings. I want to talk about why Abraham was saved, then when Abraham was saved, and then finally how Abraham was saved. So why, when, and how Abraham was saved. Let's look at those three things together as we walk through Romans chapter 4. First, why Abraham was saved, and, and importantly for Romans chapter 4, why why it was not that he was saved. What's not it, right? That's an important point that Paul makes. Read with me, uh, if you will give attention, to the reading of God's word, the first eight verses of Romans chapter 4. Hear now God's word. "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh?' His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it in our hearts so that we might understand what saving faith looks like. Thank you that these words were written not just for Abraham, and not just for the first century church at Rome, but that these words were written for us. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be willing to use them now so that we would understand what it means to have faith in God, and that you would even use this time to grow or strengthen our faith. And we ask that you'd be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, the first thing we're looking at is why Abraham was saved. Or what it was not the reason that he was saved, right? And if you listen to what Paul says in these first eight verses, it's very clear that Abraham was saved because of his faith and not because of any good works or good actions that Abraham did. We read in Genesis 15 and verse 6, and it's expounded here, that that Abraham was credited or reckoned or counted righteous, which means that salvation is not something that he earned, but it is a gift that is given him by God. And then Paul gives a couple of reasons for this. And if you look in verse 2, Paul says, if Abraham had done something to contribute to his salvation, then he would be in a place where he could boast. And if you read the scripture through over and over again, it says, listen, no man boasts before God. We read that in Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says it several times. You can read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read it in Ephesians chapter 2. It's just this principle in the word that, that no person can stand before God and boast. And so Paul says, if being saved by something you did would allow you to boast, since that is not true because the scripture clearly says that no one can boast before the Lord, the error in the conclusion would show an error in the premise that Abraham must not have done anything to contribute to his salvation. Then Paul gives another example in verse 4, and he gives this argument about a wage, right? That if you work at a job, you earn a wage, And so the employee is owed that wage because they have worked, and so they've earned a wage, and the employer owes the employee a wage. They're entitled to it because they've worked for it and they've earned it. And so Paul says, well, if Abram is credited or counted or reckoned to be righteous, then that is a gift given. It's not like a wage that was earned, or that is owed to us by God for some work that we did. And then in verse 5, Paul very clearly states what saving faith is. So I want to take a minute to camp out here, because verse 5 tells us whose faith it is that is counted as righteousness. So who is that? Let's look at that together. Verse 5 what does it say? Whose faith that is counted as righteousness? Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now that's strange that it's the one who does not work. What does that mean? Is Paul saying that someone who has saving faith, someone who's a Christian, is a person who no longer tries to do good works or tries to do the things of the law or just keeps running up sin in our life, that we don't have to worry about that anymore if we're a Christian, that, that, that saving faith is one who does not work anymore? That's not at all what Paul is saying. Well, how do we know? Well, look at the context. Right before this discussion in Romans chapter 4, in Romans 3, in verse 31, Paul writes, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul said, it's not that we don't care about the law anymore. We still seek to uphold the law. And it's not that we say our sin doesn't matter anymore. Let's just sin all we want to. Because right after this, in Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace would abound? By no means. So, Paul's not saying here that the one who has faith, the one who no longer works, is one who doesn't care about the law or doing anything good anymore, right? That's not what he's saying. So, what is he saying? He's saying that a saved person no longer trusts in their good work as a way to be saved. Because he's just said, don't trust it. That's not the way we're saved. Verse 2, verse 4, right? So basically what he's saying is a Christian is a person who stops working to be saved, not a person who stops working, period. Do you get that? A Christian is a person who stops working to be saved, Not a person who stops working, who stops doing good things. So salvation comes to those who stop trying to work for their salvation and just receive salvation as a gift from God. So if we stop trusting in what we do, we stop trusting in our work, then what is it that we turn to and begin to trust in? Where do we transfer our faith? What does that look like? We'll keep going in the verse. And to the one who does not work, right, who's not trusting in our work to save us, but instead trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly? You're telling me that, 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 that ungodly people are in? good news is, is that God who, it justifies even the ungodly, those who don't do all the good works that they should, right? Those who haven't strictly adhered to the law of God. And so watch, that's the trust transfer, right? That I'm not trusting in myself and my efforts and my being good enough, and my being a good enough parent, and my being a good enough employee. I'm not trusting in my own work anymore. I'm trusting in even the ungodly, the one who justifies even the wicked. The Christian is the person who trusts in God having a way to save us even though we don't deserve it, even though we have not earned it. We trust God to have a way to save us despite our record, despite our lack of good works. So the Christian stops trusting in themselves and starts trusting in God, and that trust and that belief and that faith in God saving us is credited as righteousness. Now, if saving faith means we stop trusting other things and start trusting God who justifies the ungodly, what are the implications of that? Let's kind of tease this out for a minute and think about the implications for that in the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever, right? I think it would mean at least this, that saving faith is more than just believing there's a God. Some people look at Genesis 15 and verse 6, and Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and so people say, well, if you just believe in God, you believe that there is a God, then that's enough. I don't think that's what this is saying, right? It's saying the one who trusts in the one who justifies, the one who will provide a way in their grace and mercy even for people who don't deserve it. It's a step beyond that, right? That saving faith is more than just believing that there is a God, or... For those of us who love our theology and we love learning about God, saving faith is to be more than just believing that God is good or that God is holy or that God is eternal, right? I mean, you understand demons believe that, right? They know because that is true. And so just believing that there is a God or just believing that God is good or that God is holy or that he's eternal or he's omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent, all those things are true. But this seems to be saying that saving faith is more than that. Listen to me, this is important. People who come to church every week and would be here even when it's cold on February the 6th, right? Saving faith is more than just believing that the Bible is God's word or even showing reverence for God. In our speech patterns and in coming in worship, but saving faith is more than that. Because here's the reason why. You can believe all those things, that God is good, that he's holy, that he's omnipotent, that this is his word and you have great reference for him. You can believe all those things and continue to trust in yourself and to seek to be your own savior by trusting in your own performance or in your own goodness. You can do both of those things. to be saved. We must see where our trust is. Where is it that I'm placing my trust? And then transfer that trust to the one who justifies even the ungodly, to the one who makes a way for those who do not deserve it. If salvation comes from anything we do, then the object of our faith would be ourselves, our own ability. But if faith is a gift from God and not earned, then the object of our faith is God and his mercy and his power and his grace to provide a way for people who don't deserve to be saved. Verses 6 through 8, Paul's just saying, hey, look, this view's not new. That in Psalm 32, David has already written that salvation is for those whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered, the one whose sins are not counted against them. Psalm 32 is our call to worship. And that call to worship, it said, hey, I acknowledge my sin to God. I confess my sin to him, and he forgave me. that's what saving faith looks like. That's why Abraham was saved, because he had faith in the one who would provide a way for even the ungodly to be saved, not faith in himself or in his own works. That's why Abraham was saved and the reason he wasn't saved, right? The reason that it was not that he was saved. All right, number two, when Abraham was saved, when was it that Abraham was saved? And Paul goes on to write about that it was before Abraham was circumcised and it was before the law was given. Look with me in verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Is this blessing then, this blessing of having righteousness credited to us, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The promise was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, We don't really have a whole lot of debate about circumcision. That's not a big deal to us, okay? I understand that. But to understand what Paul's saying here, you need to understand that that Jewish people saw circumcision as really important. And the reason it was important is it was the sign of membership into the people of God. It's what you did if you belonged to God, and it showed that you were a part of the people of God. So in verse 9, when Paul says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He's saying, Is it only for Jewish people or is it for people outside of that? Because they were seen as God's chosen people. It's the question being asked. And of course, you can see the answer. No, it's not only for Jewish people or only people who are circumcised or only people who do certain religious things in order to make themselves acceptable to God. Because in verse 10, we're told that Abram was credited with righteousness before he was circumcised. And in verse 11, it says that all who believe will be counted as righteous as well. If you keep reading in verses 13 to 17, Paul contrasts two approaches. He contrasts on the one hand, adherence to the law, those who follow all the dictates of the law. And on the other hand... The contrast is those who have faith in the promises of God. And and Paul makes a very simple argument. He says, look, if you know your timeline, Moses doesn't come along for 400 years after Abraham. The law is not given until 400 years later on Mount Sinai, so it couldn't have been observing the law that saved Abraham because the law hadn't even been given yet. Right? That's his whole argument. And so he's saying... That Abram was not saved by adhering to the law, but by believing in, trusting in the promises of God. And all of us who believe in or trust in the promises of God can be saved like Abraham. What are the implications of that? Think about that with me. That means that salvation is for all who believe. You don't have to be a certain ethnic group, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to strictly adhere to all the do's and don'ts of the scripture to be saved. It means that we trust in the one who provides a way even for the ungodly to be saved. It's important when Abraham was saved because it was before he was circumcised, before the law was given, and that shows that salvation is by faith alone. Now, let's look at the nature of this faith. The third point I wanted to talk about was how Abraham was saved. Well, we've established he was was saved by his faith. We've gotten that now, Scott. You've pounded that in the ground. Because Paul does here, right? That's why we've said it over and over again. So we understand he's been saved by his faith. But how does saving faith work? What does that look like exactly? Tell me a little more about it. A lot of times we want to know more. And the scripture goes deeper, and it tells us more here. So let's just point out a couple of things about faith as we look at the rest of Romans chapter 4. I would say initially that faith believes the word of God in hope. That faith believes the word of God in hope. You see that there in verse 18, right? In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So he believed what he had been told by God. He believed the word of God in hope. So that's one thing we can say about this saving faith, right? Saving faith believes the word of God in hope. Now, it's interesting that this faith is realistic, right? It doesn't overlook the obstacles. Look at verse 19, he, Abram, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You hear what he's saying there? God has promised that Abraham and Sarah are gonna have a baby. But Abraham's almost a hundred years old, and Paul says, as good as dead. That's I mean, a little harsh. I don't believe I would have said that. But he said Abraham knew that he was as good as dead, and he had a 100-year-old wife who had been infertile her entire century of life. And so that when you look at that, there's not a whole lot of hope. So, faith is aware of the obstacles, right? Abraham was aware of his wife and his own situation, and it looked hopeless. But I think we can say something else about faith here. Abram did not base his belief on his feelings or his circumstances or what he could see humanly with his eyes, right? He had faith in God and walked by faith and not by sight. So, so what does that mean? How, what does that look like? Well, faith is aware of the obstacles, But faith also focuses on the glory and the power of God. Look at verse 20 and 21. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Think about that with me. That means faith focuses on the glory and power of God. Now, this is really important, because a lot of people say faith just means a blind that you close your eyes and you just jump, right? Cir- forget the circumstances of your feeling, just go ahead and, and jump. It's blind faith. Well, this shows it's not blind faith. It doesn't say the circumstances look bad, but he just believed anyway. It says the circumstances were bad, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but... In that moment, he focused on the glory and the power of God. So Abram must have thought something like this. I'm 100 years old and as good as dead. My wife's 100 years old. She's never had a baby. We've been promised we're going to have a baby. But God, it is glory. Created all things by the power of his word. In the space of six days and all very good. And the God who put the stars in the sky, that God had said, look at the stars, that's how many of them. The God who spoke the stars into existence, the one who has that kind of power, wouldn't be hard to have a 100-year-old couple have a baby. (laughs) If he made people that he knows how they work, and he knows how to work within the creation that he made. So it's not a blind faith. It's not a blind jump. It's Abraham looking at God and his power and his glory and realizing that he is able, despite the way I feel about the situation, despite how the circumstances are looking to me, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to focus on him and trust in his word. And verse 22 says, that's the kind of faith. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And the remaining verses say that's true of us as well. Let me make a couple of applications. First, if you're here today... And you are a believer. You have faith. But you're saying, but Lord, I need more faith. I need you to strengthen my faith. Because in my faith, a lot of times my feelings sort of overwhelm where I am. Or my circumstances can overwhelm where I am and cause me to doubt. How do I strengthen my faith? How can my faith be stronger than what it is already? And here's what I think Abraham teaches us about that. Get to know God better. It's the answer. How can I strengthen my faith? How can I grow? Get to know God better. Abraham saw the circumstances. He realized he was as good as dead, but because he knew God, the one who had created all things and made these promises and shown himself to be faithful, he was able to have faith despite his feelings and the circumstances. Listen, for many of us, we think about our feelings and we look at our circumstances more than we look at or know about or study the character of God. And if that's the situation we're in, our faith will waver. Because we think about the circumstances more than we think about the glory and the power of God. We have got to be a people. If you want your, your faith to grow, if you want your faith to be strengthened, you need to know more about God who is faithful, who is good. And as we begin to dwell on those things, my feelings, feeling like I'm as good as dead, (laughs) my circumstances pale in comparison to the power and glory of God. You want your faith to grow and strengthen? Get to know God better. For some of us, you may be here and you may say, I'm not even sure I have saving faith. I'm not really sure I trust at all. I mean, I believe there's a God. I try to be a good person. It's important that we do ask ourselves, what are we trusting in to save us? Do I have that kind of saving faith? What is it that I'm trusting in? Some of you may remember an old book called, and a program called Evangelism Explosion. Remember D. James Kennedy wrote that book years ago. And in that book, when he advises when you're sharing your faith that a good question to ask people, and this is a great test, to see what is it that I'm trusting in. Remember D. James Kennedy, right? He has that, that famous question, if you were to die tonight and stand before God at the gates of heaven and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Think about that. If you were standing before God at the gates of heaven he said, why should I let you in, what would I say? Most folks, if they're honest, will say I've tried really hard for the good in my life to outweigh the bad. That means you're trusting in your efforts, your work. That's not saving faith, right? Go back first point of the sermon. Many folks say, "Well, I believe in God and I try really hard." <laughs> That's faith plus works, right? If it's my trying really hard that, that that puts me over the top, then there's something that I can boast about. Hey, I tried really hard. That's not it either. So what is saving faith? As I imagine this week myself standing before God and him saying, why should I let you in? I, I think the answer would be this. It's not because I'm good enough. Because I'm not, I fall short. My hope is not in me. My hope is in you, your goodness, your mercy. I have faith that you provide a way for even the ungodly to be welcomed into your family. That's my hope. And I can be welcomed in because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then I thought to myself, if you're standing before God, you're not any more going to be able to say all that than the man in the moon, right? You're probably going to be, you know, not speechless. So I thought, well, maybe if I could just say one thing, I would just say, Jesus. Whatever you can, maybe just sign it. Learn the sign language. Uh, Nail print hands, right? Jesus. It's trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and not anything in us. Let's pray and ask God to give us that gift and to grow the strength of that faith in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. (laughs) We ought to just thank you and praise you all day that you are a God who justifies the ungodly, that you allow people into your heaven, you allow people into your family who fall short, who don't deserve it, who don't adhere to the law, who don't do all the religious things, who don't do all the things you call us to do. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace To people who don't deserve it. For some of us, Father, I pray that you would help us to see how we fall short. We're here today thinking we're pretty good folks. I pray that you would convict us and show us how we trust in other things. For others of us, Father, I just pray for the hearts of my friends who feel so just dirty and and far from you. Who feel like you would never let us in because you know the things that we do or the things that we think think. Oh, I pray for the guilty conscience, the one who's tender of heart, that they would hear your word today in Romans 4 and verse 5, that you are the one who justifies the ungodly. Please come and use this time as we sing, as we come to your table to do the work in your people that only you can do. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.